Last November, we, as Americans, we faced a decision that had significant consequences. And sorry to bring this up again, but uh, let's talk a little bit about our election because it, it has a lot to say about where we're going today. Uh, you know, we had two candidates uh, when all the smoke cleared, and we had one candidate that promised um, that he would make America great again. And we had another whose slogan was, Better Together responsible people took this election very, 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 very seriously because elections do have consequences, you know? And so people who really wanted to, to, um, to be responsible, put a lot of thought and a lot of prayer into, uh, to the decision who we would elect as our president, because we didn't want to make a decision based on slogans. We wanted to make a decision based on substance, Right. And your faces look a lot like the 915 faces right now. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not going to get all political here. Uh, we're we're going to go someplace else. I don't have enough wisdom to tell you if you voted well or not. All right, so we're not going there. But just stick with me here for a second. Um, in fact, if you're a note taker, let's just write this down right now. Because here's where I'm going with this. Leadership appointments have consequences. Isn't that true? And that's true with any position of leadership. There's consequences to who you appoint into particular Uh, positions. At Emmanuel, what we try to do here as a church is we try to look to the scriptures as best we can for our guide when it comes to faith and when it comes to practice. And one of the things you see if you read the Bible, you see example after example after example after example of the difference that appointing the right leaders makes. There are practical implications when you appoint a particular person into a particular leadership role. And the difference is particularly profound at the top of any given ticket. Well, as people of the book, we, we do our best to recognize that we have, our, have the honor and also the responsibility to vote well, to prayerfully discern to the best of our ability which candidates will do the best job of governing with integrity and with selflessness. We want to elect candidates who are committed to doing what's right to listen to wise counsel, those who will do their best to make decisions that are aligned with our Constitution. Well, the way we vote has a profound impact on our lives. And the more influential the position, the higher the stakes. Let me repeat that last line one more time. The more influential the position, the higher the stakes. And that's why not only with voting, but within all these influential positions in our lives, we want to try to make good decisions. For instance, if you have kids the person that you appoint as a caregiver to your kids, you take that real serious, don't you? Because there's practical implications for that appointment. Also, when it comes to choosing a spouse, it should not be, well, I'm of a marrying age. So let me find best available. It should never, ever be that because that appointment in your life has a profound impact on your life. So whatever the appointment is based on the, 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 the stakes, that is a key, key decision that you make. So that brings us to this next point on our talk sheet. Who have you appointed as your ultimate savior and Lord as your ultimate savior and Lord. And let's take the religion out of the, the, this, um, these phrases, savior and Lord, these words, savior and Lord for just a minute, because there's lots of little S saviors and it's okay to have little S saviors and lots of them. Example, your car breaks down on the highway. If you're a Christian, you are not dishonoring God by, by calling AAA instead of saying, God, you're the ultimate savior here, so you save my car, heal it. You know, it's okay to call AAA, right? Is that, 
you track me there? So it's okay to have little S saviors, lots of them, who come in and rescue you from situations. And the same is true with little L lords. To have people that you've appointed to authority in your life, that's okay, that's healthy, that's normal, that's the way God created the world. If you are down the hall at the swimming pool, and the lifeguard says, get out of the pool, you are not dishonoring God, if you're a Christian, by listening to their authority instead of saying, no, my authority is Lord Jesus Christ, so, you know, I... No, in fact, you're dishonoring God in that situation, right? So it's okay to have little S saviors. We're going to have a lot of those. We're going to have a lot of little L lords. What we're going to be pressing into today is who plays the role of capital S savior in your life? Who have you appointed to that role? And who have you appointed into the role of capital L Lord? Because that makes all the difference, not only now, but into eternity. If everything was on the line... Everything was on the line, and you could only trust one voice. Who are you going to trust? And if you had all of your influencers in your life, and you could only bow to one, who are you going to bow to? That's what this is about. That's what this is about. Well, this shouldn't come as a surprise, even if you only know a little bit about the Bible, but the Bible makes the claim that there is no better candidate, and there's a place to write this in your notes, for capital S Savior, capital L Lord, than Jesus of Nazareth. That's a case that the scriptures make. And I can't think of a better book of the Bible to focus in on, if we're going to make this case, than the book of Hebrews. During the season of Lent, we're focusing in on the book of Hebrews. And if you're not familiar with how the Bible's constructed, um, the way it works is that the scriptures were not just one document written by one author over one time period. It was written over many centuries on at least three different continents by multiple authors. It was written primarily in two different languages, but there were three languages represented in it. So of these, this collection of documents, these are the most carefully vetted documents in the history of the world that were collected into this collection that we call the Bible. And the one of these documents that we're focusing on during Lent is the book of Hebrews. It was a real first century letter. It is a remarkable document on almost every level. And I'm going to geek out on you here for just a second because I, I found some stuff that I had never heard before. Um, here's some, some things that my, uh, my sources told me about the, uh, the, just the first four verses. Because one of the things, when we look at it in an English translation, we can miss so much. And so just so you know that this is a book, if you don't already, this is a book that there's so much going on here. Listen to what's going on in just the first four verses. Okay, this concise segment, said one of my sources, sets the tone, talking about these first four verses, for the rest of the epistle, because it stresses the person and work of God's Son. The paragraph consisting of these four verses is brilliant in style and alliteration and grammar and content. It serves admirably as an introductory section to the rest of the letter. It's kind of what that word means. For example, just chapter 1, verse 1, just this one verse, features a series of five Greek words, all beginning with the Greek equivalent of the letter P, which serve as an alliteration that cannot be duplicated in any English translation. Another source said this, the author also appears to model some of the language here on the opening of the prologue to Ecclesiasticus which was a Jewish wisdom book in wide circulation by this period and almost certainly familiar to his readers. All right, my point in bringing all this up is to to say there's so many layers to this book. There is so much going on here, so much amazing content to this letter. 
And while an exploration of literary construction of Hebrews may prove interesting to some, it's not all that helpful when it comes to your daily life, right? So that's where we want to transition. We want to move towards what, what did this letter say to these people? And then what does it say to us? That's what we're going to be looking at today because Hebrews was a real letter written to real people. This is so important to remember this. It was a real letter written to real people and it had a real purpose. This wasn't someone who was just capturing the content of some coffee shop conversation. This letter is not the equivalent of some classroom where people are just thinking of ideas. This, this was a letter that was written to people who had a very significant decision when it came to appointments. Who they were going to appoint, capital S Savior, capital L Lord. In fact, that Savior and Lord question, for some of them, would literally be a matter of life and death. Again, Hebrews doesn't capture a coffee shop conversation or a classroom discussion. If you, in those times and in those places, and especially the years about to come for these people... If you were to proclaim Jesus is Lord with your lips, that would be heresy to your family. That would be treason to the government. So for you to proclaim Jesus is Lord with your lips, for you to say he is my capital L Lord, he is my capital S Savior, that's heresy to your family, that's treason to your government. It could be the death sentence for you. This is not the equivalent of putting a Trump sign in your your yard. This is not the equivalent of putting a Hillary sign in your yard and getting some flack for that. This, you even see in the letter itself, it talks about people who had lost all their possessions as a result of their faith. Which then begs the question, why would you do this? Why would these people who this letter is going to, why would they say, I'm going all in on a crucified carpenter. I'm, I'm all in. Capital L, yep. Capital S, yep. He's my guy. A crucified carpenter. Why would you go through that for him? And why would we today, with all of the things that compete for our attention, for Savior and Lord, why? The book of Hebrews takes this head on. So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, here we go. Hebrews 1.1, that's where we started last week. I want to review those opening verses because it it takes a running start into what we're going to talk about today. So here we go, Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 1. Also, I want to let you know, too, that we have stacks of Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. So make sure you grab one on your way out. All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Well, if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write this down because what we're going to write down right now is the outline for the next three weeks. This week and the next two that follow. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And now the author is going to make this case that the son is above the angels, he's greater than Moses, and he is the perfect priest. That may not mean much to you. To them, that would have been, oh, you're going there. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to make the case that the crucified carpenter is above angels? You're going to make the case that he's greater than Moses? And you're going to make the claim that he is the perfect priest? Because priests aren't perfect. 
You're going to do this. Yes, that's where the Hebrew author goes. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about why, what that meant and why it matters. And we're going to start with angels. And why are we going to start with angels? Because that's where the author of Hebrews starts. As the author of Hebrews is going to make this grand case of all places, he starts with angels. And he doesn't just start with angels. He starts with angels right away. You're going to see that here yourself in just a minute or two. He launches right in, the sun is awesome, and let's talk about angels and why he's better than them. That's where it goes. All right, now, before we look at the comparisons, I do want to pause for just a second and talk a little bit about angels, because in our culture, there's a whole lot of misinformation that goes out about angels. You know, the the Bible is where we get this whole concept of angels to begin with, and people decide to just off-road from the scriptures. For instance... How many of you at some point in your life heard that we become, or had it implied, that we become angels when we die? All right. Is that what the Bible says? No. They're two very different species, if you can even call them that. So there's all these things that we grew up hearing about angels that is not what the scriptures say at all. Here's a great little summary statement um, that I saw in one of my comment, uh, one of my, my resources when it comes to what the Bible actually says about angels. So here we go. This is from the NIV application commentary. In the scriptures, angels are created heavenly beings who primarily function as messengers for God. They reveal his will. They announce key events. They also serve to protect God's people. In context, accentuating God's power and majesty, angels worship him or attend his throne. It is therefore no small significance that angels in Hebrews are said to worship the Son an implicit acclamation of his deity. In fact, there's different accounts you can see in the scriptures themselves where people come across these angels and they're blown away, so they start to worship the angels, and the angels are all like, no, who do you worship? You worship God. Well, if angels are worshiping Jesus, that's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. There was a fascination with angels in the first century Jewish world. And for good reason. Because during the Old Testament period, there are all kinds of these accounts of angels appearing to godly people. Of angels bringing good news and performing miracles. Of angels announcing judgment that was about to fall. Of angels going before and protecting God's people and driving out enemies. And one of my favorites growing up was this account of just one angel... That decimated an army. One angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. Well, these angels, they're revealed to be powerful beings that inspire fear and awe and wonder. And if we had time, we could go into everything that Hebrews says about angels, including Hebrews 13, where it says some of us have entertained angels unaware. Unaware. So they can disguise themselves even as people. These are amazing beings. Well, for roughly 400 years after the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New, for that 400 years, there was silence, at least in recorded history, regarding these these angels, at least recorded in the scriptures. And then, just before Jesus appears, what happens? Angels start appearing again, start speaking, and and they're, they're showing up. Well, the author of Hebrews taps into this fascination with angels before he even gets to verse 4. 
take a look at this. All right, so here's where we started. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, many times, many places, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Those are verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 says this. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word and his power. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, comma, hallelujah, comma in English, comma, and here comes verses 4 through 14. So three little verses of opening, comma, and then comes this. Hebrews chapter 1, starting with verse 4, comma, having become as much superior to what? To whom? Angels. So this son became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? Today I've begotten you. Or again, saying to well, the angels, to him I will be a father and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And of the Son, he said, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of of those who are to inherit salvation. All right, let's unpack this a little bit and then let's apply it to our lives. Uh, If you were reading along either on the screens or in your Bible, did you see a lot of quotes? There's a lot of quotes here. These quotes are from the Bible that existed at the time that the New Testament was being written. Today we call that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And one of the things that the author of Hebrews does is he provides multiple examples from the scripture to make his case. He's he's basically saying, hey, this isn't me making up a bunch of stuff about Jesus. The Old Testament, the scriptures, our scriptures have been talking about him all along. Here's a quote that speaks to this um, from one of my commentaries. It says this, During the era in which Hebrews was written, teachers of scriptures built support for a theological position by stringing together various Old Testament texts. Such chain quotations offered defense of the position being taught through the quantity of support given. The desired effect was to offer so much evidence that the listeners say, Uncle, I get it. I give up. Gotcha. The Bible talks about this. The scripture says this. I'm with you. I got it. That was what he was trying to do. He was providing lots of quotes. And specifically, this is interesting. He chose to quote from the Psalms. 
This was brilliant. This is one of the reasons I believe the Holy Spirit really did inspire these words. This was so brilliant. Because he's not just appealing to Jewish text here. He's really referencing their hymnal. He's doing both. He's referencing their hymnal as he is referring to their holy scriptures. If you worshiped regularly at a church in those days, a Christian church, one of these early Christian churches, or at the synagogue, where were you getting your songs from? The book of Psalms. That was your songbook. So, because books were super expensive, you didn't go home and just have access to all the lyrics. You couldn't Google, you know, lyrics to Psalm 103. You know, you couldn't do that. So you had you memorized it. So these songs that he's quoting are are part of their memory, right? They they know these words. So when he comes, when he when he starts to use them, they can say these words. But it's even more than that, because these psalms were sung often as songs. He was also tapping into the soundtrack in their head. Let me give you an example. It's, again, a really horrible one, but um, it's kind of like this with a small K, kind of. If I said the words, sweet Caroline, good times never seemed so good, I've been inclined to believe they never would. How many of you have, especially if you're a roller skater back in the day? See? Right? That was unplanned and very funny. Um, the, uh, the, the, there's a soundtrack, right, going on in a lot of our heads. So that's what's going on. So these people, now they're really engaged. Okay, this is a topic that I'm interested in, the, these angels. You're, you're making a case from the scriptures, and I know that song. I know that song. One of the things where you can get this kind of information, by the way, one of the reasons we recommend resources like the ESV study Bible or other study Bibles in your notes is because you can find all this stuff right, right here. This is really accessible. I'd encourage you to have one of these at home because then if you sometimes you read a passage you're like, or you hear a passage like, what's going on? You can get some different thoughts from scholars regarding what was going on. And one of the things that, that I found as I was doing my research in, in books like this is that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 97 and Psalm 104 as he makes this point that the angels, they're God's servants. And there's a place to write this in your notes real quick. Angels are God's messengers. They do all kinds of things, but primarily angels are God's messengers. They don't come up with the source material, right? The angels, they are telling what God tells them to say. They pass along what they've been told. But Jesus... On the other hand, he's not just a servant of the Most High God. He's the embodiment of him. He's at a whole different place than the angels. Well, after making the case there, the author of Hebrews doesn't stop. He also quotes Psalm 45. He quotes Psalm 102 as he makes the case that the Son is an eternal king. An eternal king who laid the foundations of the earth. That's why that last song that we sang, we don't say, we worship you angels. It's with angels and saints that we sing, worthy are you, Lord. In fact, you're the only one worthy. Well, after making this case again, that the sun is far above the angels, he asks this question. The author of Hebrews asks this question. This is out of Hebrews 2.6, but he's actually quoting Psalm 8.4. Who are we that you're mindful of us? In chapter 1, he makes this grand case that there's no one like the Son. He's so far above even angels. And then, in Hebrews 2.6, ask that question, who are we 
that you are mindful of us. I remember the first time I really pondered that question. I was in Estes Park, Colorado. That's a great place to question, <laughs> ponder that question. It was night. And I'm looking at the stars on a clear night, surrounded by mountains. Man. And it made it even more powerful because I was coming out of a, I was there for a youth conference at the YMCA of the Rockies. And, and so I'm coming out of this, this amazing chapel service where we had really pressed into Jesus. And the fact that this man, who was also God, laid down his life for us. Who are we that the Son would lay down his life for us? Well, angels are God's messengers. They've been known to bring good news of great joy, like, hey, he laid down his life for you. Well, in Hebrews, we're reminded of the messenger, capital M, who not only brings the good news, but he was the one who laid down his life for us himself. And he taught us that, that by putting our faith in him, by putting our faith in him, we can be born again. Born again. And this idea of being born again, this isn't just a thought. This idea of putting your faith in him, it's not just a thought. When, when the Bible talks about faith, the Bible isn't referring to a, okay, now with every eye closed and every head bowed, just make this, this thought in your head that Jesus is Lord and just tell him that. It's, it's that and it's your whole life response. It's now opening up your eyes after and confessing with your lips He's Lord and living it out with your life. It's, it's integrated. It's the whole life response. That's biblical faith. To proclaim Jesus as Lord with your lips and your life, even when it costs you everything. And that's why the author of Hebrews is trying to make this strong, strong case to say it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. He is worthy of this decision. Which brings us to the practical application. And for you and I this morning, there's a place to write this in your notes. What's your response to the messengers, capital M, message? It's one thing to take an angel's word for it and respond. What are you going to do with the message from the messenger himself? Like a righteous lawyer with a self-evident case, the author of Hebrews presents the evidence that he believes points to only one conclusion. In the Old Testament days, he points out godly people responded to the message that was delivered to them through prophets and angels. How much more, he makes the case, should we respond to the message that was delivered through the Son? That's where Hebrews goes next. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 2. If we just keep reading, here's where it takes us. Picking up where I left off. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience reserved a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And I can't think of a greater gift that the Holy Spirit gives than that gift of being born again, where he comes in and cleanses our mind and cleanses our heart as we put our full trust in Jesus of Nazareth. 
which is why I want to maybe pastoral malpractice to not extend an invitation to you today to appoint Jesus as capital S, capital L in your life, either for the first time or for the first time again. And to do so not just out of what will happen to me if I don't, but to do so out of what happens to me when I do. Because I think about that. I was reflecting back on this whole born-again concept, which I know has just been mocked in, in our culture, but it's so beautiful when you think about it that Jesus extends this opportunity where regardless of your past, you can start new and fresh and clean. And where instead of us trying in our own strength to think God-honoring thoughts and to live in a God-honoring way, he wants to come in and from within change our mind so that our mind is drawn to the things of God, to literally have the mind of Christ, it says, we can have, for our hearts to be oriented towards wanting to do right instead of feeling guilt by just doing wrong. This whole born-again experience, I, I look back, and, and it was, it's been an unfolding thing in my life, but there was a defining moment in 1990, 1985. El Paso, Texas, Yosleta Mission, praying with a guy named Roger, and he encouraged me to open up my life to God. You know, and, and after that prayer, I still had the same questions I had going in with. I still had a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same struggles, but something happened in my life when I opened myself up to God. In fact, it was the weirdest thing for me. Some of you heard me try to explain it before. I came out of this meeting just ready to give up on Christianity, and then I came out of it wanting to just sit in this chapel and just say, God, you're awesome. I, I praise you. I, 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 I had no frame of reference for, for what happened. The, um, the experience that I had it sounds real similar to experiences that many of you have had and also that have been going on from centuries. Um, the other resource that we, we recommend in your notes today is this little book called Hebrews for Everyone. We'll continue to recommend this throughout the series. Um, some of you remember N- Intern Nick. Intern Nick pointed me to these, these little books by N.T. Wright, and I end up quoting from them more than any others. Here's something that N.T. Wright wrote about this section of Hebrews and specifically about this kind of, not kind of, this born-again experience. He says, when people believed the message, this is talking about back in the day, they discovered a strange new energy inside themselves, a warm, disturbing, amen to that, a warm, disturbing personal presence which enabled them to do things, which put new ideas into their heads, which motivated and energized them to become different people from the inside out. The earliest Christians knew what this, uh, to call this personal presence inside them. It was God's Holy Spirit. It was the gift of God's own presence and self. Not just in Jesus, important as though that was and is, but it was living within them. Hebrews doesn't often refer to the Holy Spirit dwelling in people, but this passage and one or two others show that the writer takes it for granted. Those who have been born again, is that a pretty good summary? It's kind of this, this presence within you that something has changed. So, let's give you that opportunity. I'm going to invite the worship band to come forward. And Jason found this song. I'd never heard this before. Here's a sample of the lyrics from this song. You're going to get a chance through the song to, to make this prayer. The, the, the lyrics include these. Humbly I stand, an offering. With open hands, Lord, I bring everything and nothing less. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? That's it. That's capital L. That's capital S stuff. Everything. It's all yours, God. Everything and nothing less. So, Lord, take control. I trust you. I'm letting go to give you everything and nothing less.
Let me pray, and then let's all pray together using the words of this song. Father, even as I use those words, all, I I know that that's not fair words uh, for me to use because there's probably lots of folks here who have all kinds of questions, and they're not ready to take that step. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend in this room now. Um, I, I know enough to know that my words are not convincing, but I also know from experience that you are so good. And you met a real cocky 16-year-old in that, that room, in that prayer. And you're still working on this cocky 48-year-old. But you did something there. And Lord, I pray that you would do something here now. That you would enable us to open ourselves up to you. I think someone may need to hear this message. Um, God won't break through your pride. He won't break through. Because that would dishonor the choice he's given you. But if you open yourself up, he's there. So Father, we pray that you would do that. You would open up our minds, open up our hearts to let you in. That we may truly be born again. That our sins could be forgiven. That our minds could be made new. That our hearts could be oriented towards the things that that are best for us. So, Lord, help us to respond with everything and nothing less. Bring to mind the things that we are allowing to take a idle space in our life and help us to lay down all of them so that we can receive from you today. Help us now to pray this song in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.